In your handout, turn to the very last page. And did everybody get one? I'm not sure I had enough for everyone. Okay, we got one. I usually do better guessing that, but okay, I'll give you, I don't need this, I've got one at all. Uh, what you see on the last page is actually something I handed, handed out the first week when we studied Romans as part of our introduction. But in our introduction to chapters 9 through 11 of Romans last week, I was mentioning how frequently Paul cites Old Testament passages in chapters 9 through 11. And you can see that in the second chart on the bottom. In fact, fully a full third of all of the quotations you see in that chart are found in 9 through 11. Which means it's one of the reasons why people avoid uh, studying Romans 9 to 11 because if they don't know their Old Testament, it doesn't make a lot of sense and just feels irrelevant. But when you have the Old Testament fleshed out in front of you and expanded or expounded upon, suddenly it starts making sense. Also, um, you'll notice on the text itself on pages one and two, um, I rearranged the text in kind of a stanza format to help you see the logical progression of the text. If you're looking at it in your regular Bible, you'll just see these as paragraphs. Just the blood, you know, the blizzard of text in paragraph form. In this manner, it kind of pops out the structure of the argumentation. Uh, and I'm not going to claim originality of this idea, but I will claim that I used it for you guys. Um, <clears throat> because it helps when you're reading to have the, f the, the argumentation uh, brought out. You'll even notice that I have words like question and answer in the left-hand side and you know very like in the bottom I, can't, I don't have the same thing in front of me so that's not scripture just to let you know I added those words in okay that's just to sh show you what Paul's doing in addition I've added the Old Testament references in parentheses at the end of the use of the Old Testament where Paul is quoting an Old Testament passage. That way you can find it later. But if you're in your own Bible, it just, it's not cited. You have no idea. It just says, as the scripture says, okay, we'll trust you. But what scripture? This shows where Paul is citing it. Unfortunately, there is one typographical error which I have to, have to uh, point out. It's in verse 12. The citation that you see there, Genesis 23, 23, is actually Genesis 25, 23. So please amend your uh, text. I just love exposing my fallibility to the public. Um, I do it at every occasion I can. Um, yeah, I didn't even find it until I was working through the text uh, late last night and went, ah. Right, well, I'm not going to reprint all these. I'm just going to admit my failure. Okay. Big picture. 
9 to 11, Paul is trying to position the Jewish people in the context of God's overall plan. It seems like a disconnect when you have Romans 1 through 8 ends with such a glorious uh, conclusion at the end of chapter 8 and then his next verses are into this Jewish question. As we pointed out in verses 1 to 5 last week of chapter 9, Paul's sincere and overwhelming desire for his people and their salvation is why it's being discussed. It's almost as if he said, see this wonderful, beautiful, glorious thing? And then he turns to the audience and says, how come you won't believe it? I would give my life for yours if you would just believe. So it's not a disconnect, it's a continuation to the audience. In the balance of chapter 9, you find a rather extensive Old Testament argumentation for God's choice of his people. Now, I just said something that is controversial. Because what do you mean by his people? Do you mean Jewish? Jews or do you mean Christians? Do you mean both? And this passage points out that God chooses some and not others, which is another controversial passage. I should have brought my can of worms with me. Uh, I I actually brought one. Or you have uh, the lovely situation of our recent controversy of a congressman who got elected and it was discovered he was lying about his background. Remember he said he was Jewish? And he said, oh no, I didn't say I was Jewish. I said I was Jewish. No kidding. All right, well. That's interesting. Paul isn't talking about those who are Jew-ish. He's talking about those who have ancestry like himself. But here's the thing. God has promised that his people will be brought under his wing as their salvation, the covenant promise. But now... Paul is coming along and saying, but some of you are not in that promise. And so verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, if the word of God is powerful, how come the Jews aren't believing? You see that that point? He's preaching to a Jewish congregation, also Gentiles, and there are Jews who are not believing. Why? Why? If, if God's power and God's promise is so strong, how come they're not believing? That means the word of God isn't strong enough. That means the word of God has failed. In fact, the Greek word there, 
for failed is used in Acts 27 describing the shipwreck of Paul. It's also a Greek word that in the Greek theater was used for an actor who forgot his lines. They knew it, but they forgot it. Which meant here that God's word has failed. It just was inadequate. Well, no, that's not what he's saying. Man might fail, but God doesn't fail. Isaiah 55.11 says, My word shall not return empty or void. Remember that the Jewish view of election, the Jewish view of salvation was ancestral. If you were born Jewish, you were born into God's family. As long as you didn't reject God's law, you were one of the chosen ones. Am I misrepresenting that? I mean, seriously, you can correct me. Is that a, an approximation of how we would understand? So, we have a problem here. If they're elect, then how come they're not elected? How come they're not chosen? How come they're being preached at and saying, you need to believe. You were born into election and you were guaranteed salvation. And Paul replies, it's grace, not race. That's an important thing, especially if you're talking to a modern day Jew. I had the opportunity to have a long lunch with a rabbi from Chicago. Um, he was an author and we had some interesting conversations. He was not messianic. So I'm coming at it obviously from a evangelical Christian position. He's coming at it from a very not orthodox, he would be more the reformed Jews, Jewish side, which means he's a little more, uh, what's the word? Not liberal. Wishy-washy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, less open-minded and less uh, rigid on the, you know, the orthodox, the Hasidic side and all of that. And it was his wife was with him, and so I could tell within seconds when I touched on this subject, the walls came up. You are not going to convince us, no matter what arguments you use, because we know that Jesus is not the Messiah, and you can't convince us otherwise. Even when I start pointing out prophets and prophecies and their fulfillment, nope, nope. Nope. It was just a fascinating experience for me. Um, I felt wholly inadequate because <clears throat> he spent his whole life defending that. And I have not spent my whole life witnessing to that either. So you have this feeling of, well, did I, I, I'm not going to win an argument. That's not necessarily the point. I'm trying to present something in grace. But I was focusing on the word grace not on the word race. So he says, it's not as though God of the word of God has failed. And then he says, not all who are descended from Israel, that is the new name for Jacob. 
So make sure you understand right there, that's an Old Testament reference. Not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. So you have Israel, the person, Jacob, belonging to Israel, the country. So right away, you have confusion in your um, understanding of Romans chapter 9, verse 6. So Jacob's name was changed to Israel in Genesis 32. So let's make sure we understand that right to start with. Then he says, and not all are children of Abraham because they're they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And you kind of go, what's going on here? I don't understand. What do you mean? Well, let's go back. Let's go back to Genesis. Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish people, right? He's the patriarch. He's the beginning of the Jewish people, right? Who was his firstborn son? Ishmael, not Isaac. Huh. So the firstborn son is always typically the one through whom the seed then continues. But not in this case. God didn't choose Ishmael. God chose Isaac. And Abraham too had two other sons. After Isaac, they weren't chosen either. So right away you have a sifting even in the progeny of Abraham. And Paul's pointing that out. He's saying, just because you're his offspring doesn't mean you are children of the promise. Because you could be offspring of Ishmael. You could be offspring of the uh, kids from Keturah, not from Sarah. Jesus had this conversation with the Pharisees in a certain an interesting way in John 8. In John 8, verse 33, the Pharisees answered Jesus, <clears throat> We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to everyone, anyone. <clears throat> How then can you say you will become free? And Jesus later answers, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth of what I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. Right away, he's attacking their connection to Abraham because you're a Jew, not outwardly, but inwardly. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. It's also Romans 4, 1 through 11, where it said, where Paul wrote that Abraham is a special father of believers. So you have this challenge of the ancestral and racial spiritual line against which the scripture is very clear that that has absolutely no bearing whatsoever. There there was opportunity, as he elicits in uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9, But that is to point toward belief and toward Christ, not just simply being born 
and then thus being saved because you were born correctly. As someone put it this way, says that Paul is teaching selection, not just election. God chose a particular line. And he doesn't stop there. Verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And by the way, in case you're curious, the word offspring is the Greek word sperma. It is very clear. It's, it is a human thing. Children of the promise, the promise is used 52 times in the New Testament, that Greek word. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And this is what the promise said, verse 9. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. <clears throat> Again, an allusion to the Old Testament <clears throat> of Genesis 18, verses 10 and verse 14. By the way, if you go back to Genesis 18 and you look at those two verses, he blended two verses together. Oh, wait, didn't we blend Gospels? Sorry. Uh, but he blended verses together, and that is Midrash. That's scriptural commentation, co commentating. That is a, not an unusual thing to do. We saw it this morning in the psalm that we were reading. It was a blend of two other existing psalms as something brand new with a new emphasis. It's not wrong to do that. And you can see Paul doing this. The other thing to remember, <clears throat> whenever Paul is quoting the Old Testament, he's quoting the Septuagint. He's quoting the Greek text, not the Hebrew. So you might find some differences if you go back to your Old Testament and look at the verse. Those verses in your Bible are based on the Hebrew text. Paul was baking, basing it on the Greek text. Very subtle differences. Again, not a big deal. He's trying to make a point. He's not trying to be precise in that regard. So this is what the promise said. About this time next year, Sarah will have a son, and that's Isaac. There you go. Ishmael was the firstborn, but Isaac was the chosenborn. Because Ishmael was not born of Sarah, Ishmael was born of Hagar. They took, they took things into their own hands because he didn't have a successor. They didn't trust God to provide that for them. And then he did under Isaac. Verse 10, not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children. Okay, have to stop there. Who's Rebekah? She's the cashier down at Fry's. What do you mean? I mean, we all know who Rebekah is. Well, no, you have to kind of go, wait, that's Isaac's wife. So again, if you don't know your Old Testament, these illusions kind of flip through your head. You're going, I don't know what he's talking about. Well, Rebecca conceived children by one man, Isaac, 
there wasn't a Hagar involved. There wasn't a Keturah involved. It was Isaac and Rebekah, and she had twins. Remember their names? Jacob and Esau. Remember the allusion to Jacob back up in verse 6? Jacob's name was later changed to Israel, so we have that connection. When Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, so this next statement happened before they were born, and had done nothing either good nor bad, so Jacob and Esau hadn't been good boys or bad boys, they weren't on the naughty list at Christmas, they weren't on the good list at Christmas yet, they hadn't been born yet, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, Rebekah was told the older will serve the younger. Well, you have Jacob and Esau. Esau was technically firstborn. But he gave up his birthright. For what? A bowl of soup. Really good. Had to be really good soup. I mean, I mean, wow. And what do we know happened to Esau after? But what's the rest of of Esau's story? He did not receive the blessing. Hmm? He did not receive the blessing. He did not receive the blessing. The the Edomites ended up being the descendants who were born inside. He left the country, went south, built his own tribe, and they became known as the Edomites, Mm -hmm. which were a thorn in the side of the uh, people of Israel forever. And we just heard about him in the sermon. I just love it when that happens. <laughs> I'm just listening going, <laughs> no, we didn't collude. Uh, <laughs> but that illusion is here. But Esau was firstborn. Jacob was not the one, technically. And in fact, he had to conspire with his mom's help to get a blessing from his blind father later. And it's like, why did he do that? Why didn't he just wait for God's blessing? Instead, they tried to engineer it. Um, uh, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go read the story in Genesis. And then verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And that is that's from Malachi. Fifteen hundred years later, the prophet Malachi wrote those words. Now, these this particular sentence uh, has consternated people for ever. Not just the fact that it's in Malachi, but that it's in Romans, and you just don't understand how can God hate anybody. He's not talking about Esau the person. 
he's talking about Esau, the head of Edom. Jacob, the Jewish people, his people he's loved, the Edomites, were cursed. That's the illusion. In fact, that's the illusion in Malachi. Malachi's not talking about the, the two boys. He's talking about the people. Because just before that, in the previous verse, Malachi talks about two nations. And then he talks about being Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. You could paraphrase that verse as, Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have rejected. Because you see, the people at that point were profaning the temple and they were offering substandard sacrifices. And God brought Malachi to proclaim their weaknesses and their sin. Okay. I've been rattling an awful lot of, throwing a lot of stuff at you. A lot of Old Testament stuff, a lot of allusions and you know, assuming knowledge, and I'm, I can only apologize for that. Um, but my encouragement that if it doesn't make sense, go read the Old Testament passages that are cited. And then see what Paul's trying to say. Paul is ultimately trying to point out that he, that he God, has chosen not a race, but people who believe. Now you might say, well, I don't like that. I don't like the concept of election. I, I simply say that any, any capricious God who has eight people in a room and he picks his six of them for, for blessing and two of them for condemnation, I'm sorry. I don't like that. It feels like a, uh, an, you know, uh, worse than a lottery. I mean, so seriously, I thought I, ha you know, I determine my own destiny. I choose who I want to follow. You see the problem in that? <laughs> Guess where the, the focus comes? It's me. I don't like this. I, I know better than God. And guess what? Verse 14 is a question. What shall we say then? Does this mean there's injustice on God's part? And another translation for the word injustice is unrighteousness. Not behaving badly, but simply breaking His promise. God promised this to his people, and you're telling me he's selective? Well, Paul kind of, in the strongest words that can be used in the Greek language, and it seems so light-hearted in our Bible, by no means, well, it's a little stronger than that. Not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. Chin. Maybe that's a little better translation. <laughs> Maybe not. And then he explains. And he goes back to the Old Testament. And he goes back 
to the golden calf situation of Exodus. So he's been in Genesis with Abraham and the founding of the people of Israel. And now he goes into Exodus. Exodus 32 to 34, that whole story. Moses had gone up on the mountain. And while he was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the people despaired. I, what, was he gone too long? I mean, I, I don't understand. I still, that whole thing is just weird to me, especially when Moses' brother, who was the high priest, helped the people build the golden calf. Whoa. Moses comes down, he sees this horrific idolatry. And in Exodus 30, to 28 God sees it too and 3,000 Israelites were killed as judgment yeah how long was he there what would you say two weeks a week no one knows there's no there's no clock on it yeah they just they just went to idolatry because Moses wasn't there anymore like, I mean, you can't take a vacation, you know? My, my, no pastor will ever take a vacation because he'll come back and they'll have a golden calf on the front of the church. I mean, it's that, almost, I'm being a little facetious, but obviously there was a heart in the people that did not trust God already. And it was one flashpoint, and they just went, off the rails. Yes. It just goes to show how steeped they were in the idolatry. They were steeped in that from that Egyptian 400 year. They were steeped. It was deep within the culture. And but the problem, and this is where it was, it's so distressing, is that Aaron is the high priest, and he endorsed it. He was right there with them. Again, you know that's whoa where they came from, and that's what they do. I, you know, but. They had had an awful lot already. They just crossed the Red, the Dead Sea. Red Sea. They saw God's act. They saw the ten plagues. They saw all these promises. They had the manna from heaven. They had all these signs, and they went, "Huh." Well, on my phone, it says this: the internet is right. Man. Anyway, we're little deviation here, but you see Paul pointing to this and 3,000 are killed in chapter 33 you have Moses pleading for mercy for his people and Moses goes back up the mountain God carves out the Ten Commandments again he comes down from that mountain and the journey continues and the people are properly um, disciplined. But you have the quote from that chapter, chapter 33, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on who I have compassion. It's my choice, not yours. 
Charles Spurgeon has a very interesting take on this particular passage. And I just want to read it to you verbatim. So pardon me as I, as I quote him at length. Charles Spurgeon writes, This means that God's mercy and compassion cannot be subject to any cause outside of his free grace. God had mercy on the Israelites, not destroying all of them for their idolatry, not because they deserved it, but simply because he chose to be merciful. In these words, the Lord in his plainest manner claims the right to give or to withhold his mercy according to his sovereign will as a prerogative prerogative of life and death is invested in a monarch, so the judge of all the earth has the right to spare or condemn the guilty, as seems best in his sight. Men, by their sins, had forfeited all claim upon God. They deserved to perish for their sins, and if all do so, they have no ground for complaint. If the Lord steps in to save any, he may do so if the ends of justice are not thwarted. And if he judges it best to leave the condemned to suffer a righteous sentence, none may arraign him at the bar. Foolish and impudent are all those discourses about the rights of men to be placed at the same footing as God. This is ignorant. If not worse, are those contentions against discriminating grace which are but uh, rebellions of proud human nature against the crown and scepter of Jehovah. When we're brought to see our utter ruin and ill desert and the justice of the divine verdict against sin, we no longer cavil at the truth that the Lord is not bound to save us. We do not murmur if he chooses to save others as those were do- he were doing us an injury, but feel that if he deigns to look upon us, it will be his own free act of undeserved goodness for which we shall ever bless his name. So the question is, not why God hated Esau, but why did God love Jacob? What did Jacob do to deserve God's love? Nothing. What was his nickname? Deceiver. Yay. That's a good nickname to have in high school. Uh, He wrestled with God. Yes, he he tried to believe, but he was messing up a lot. So God chose and loved Jacob. Not the question of what he hated or despised or rejected over here but that God's love. And I look at Jacob and I'm going, huh, isn't that me? He chose me. I don't deserve it. Not in the least. And while I like to show my typos to you, I show a lot worse to God. And yet he chose me. Something to think about. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
And then Paul goes back even further in the Exodus story. He goes to Exodus chapter 9. And Pharaoh, for the scripture says, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. He's saying that to Pharaoh. And then he says in verse 18, He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. And that is an allusion to the Exodus story where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you might think, oh, that's terrible. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't have a choice. Well, in Exodus 8.15 and Exodus 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It wasn't just one way. We have to be careful when we look at these and apply our human understanding of God's divine and sovereign will and say, well, I can't believe a God who would do that. So, verse 19. But it's not fair. Oh, that's a paraphrase, sorry. The verse actually reads, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Warren Wiersbe told this story. He said, I recall sharing in a street meeting in Chicago and passing out tracts at the corner of Madison and Kedzie. Most of the people were gracious and they accepted the tracts, but one man took the tract and with a snarl crumpled it up and threw it in the gutter. The name of the tract was Four, Thing God, Four Things God Wants You to Know. Huh. Well, there are a few things I'd like God to know, the man said. Why is there so much sorrow and tragedy in the world? Why do the innocent suffer while the rich go free? Bah! Don't tell me there's a God. If there is, then God is the biggest sinner that ever lived. And he turned away with a sneer and was lost in the crowd. You see, there are people who will resist God's will. All we can do is pray for them and hope that in some gracious manner, in some way, that a fire will be built in them so they see the error in their ways. But Paul responds to that question, well, who can resist him? <laughs> and I'll paraphrase it by saying, who do you think you are to ask that question? That's what he writes here. Well, who are you to answer back to God? You know, as one commentator, very conservative commentator, he said, if you look at this, these verses 20 to 24, Paul doesn't answer the question. Not really. He basically puts God's sovereignty on display and says, that's your answer. I don't know about you, but it is a constant challenge when we try to grasp the bigness of God and His sovereign will and His sovereign plans. What do they say? Man plans, God laughs. You know, it's we 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 think it's up to us. We think we control our destiny. We think we are sovereign over our own 
fate. And you have him quoting from Isaiah here. What is molded says to a molder, why do you make me like this? Now we have an artist in our midst <laughs> who she puts away her piece of art as she's drawing something. <laughs> Ooh, my goodness, that's scary. Uh, <clears throat> but you, one of the art things a couple years back, you shaped clay, if I remember correctly. Did the clay ever talk to you <laughs> and say, no, I don't want that? No, that's a pretty good clay. <laughs> in other words, you shaped the clay. The clay really had no say in it, unless it just simply was uncooperative and was not mixed correctly and, right. you know, something like that. I get that. But this is what he's picking at here. This is what he's pointing at. Is the potter and the clay. Who is molded and says, why do you make me like this? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Here's some, here's some of the Old Testament allusions here, which are just wonderful. You've got Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64 Verses 6 through 8 reads, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like wind take us away. There is no one who calls on our name, who rouses us, rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hands of your iniquity. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. In Jeremiah 18, 3 through 6. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled by the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. This is what Paul is referring to. And then he talks about this patience, this endurance. You know, when they were dancing around the golden calf, yeah, God got really angry and there was a judgment and many people died. Why didn't they all die? They deserved it. Every one of them did. 
but he was in his mercy he was showing his judgment isn't that a weird thing to say in his mercy he was showing his judgment so when we see judgment and we see mercy that coin with two sides the same coin we are amazed we don't quite know how to handle this John MacArthur has a nice way of putting it. He said, this is authority. That's what this means. It is the right to do something. Listen carefully to this, because this is going to unfold in marvelous terms. I'm quoting him. So, I do not believe that God claims the right to create sinful, damnable creatures in order to punish them. Think about that statement for a second. I don't believe God created people who are sinful just so that he can whack them. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that God creates occupants for hell. I believe the Bible very clearly says out of the Lord himself that hell was created for the devil and his angels. God is not claiming the right to create damnable creatures in order to damn them. He is claiming his right to deal with creatures who are sinful already, as he wills. He pardons and punishes as he sees fit. He doesn't make men sinners, but he chooses the disposition of men who are sinners. God is not responsible that men are sinners. Scripture makes that very clear. And if you've forgotten, reread James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither tempts he any man. I wrote, and I circled it here. I have four stars around it, so I wouldn't miss it. Think about it this way. No one who wants to be saved will be condemned. Think of it that way. Not, why does God choose one and not the other? That's the wrong question. If a person reaches out to God in repentance and asks for salvation and His grace and mercy... It is received. If it is genuine. Just don't expect God to be surprised when that happens. Like, Carl's asking me for salvation? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I mean, I gave up on that guy a long time ago. That's not God. God says, welcome, my son. He doesn't say, eh, I don't think so. You're not good enough. That is not how God works. But those who ask these questions about election and predestination and foreknowledge and all those kind of stuff, they're going to the point of, well, I don't like the fact that God chooses some and not others. Well, who does he choose? He knew ahead of time that they were going to choose him. So he's not surprised. It's like, okay, come on. Yeah, I know it's not easy to figure out. I mean, we, we, we tried to uh, 
pull all this together when we were studying Romans 8 where it reads, and we know that, uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those we called, he also justified. And those he justified, we also glorified. Beautiful language. Very confusing theologically if you are wrestling with this idea. Now, someone say, so are you a Calvinist or not? And I'm going, sure. There's much to say in that emphasis, but when it becomes the overall emphasis and then forces everything to follow a certain rigid thought line, then you can run into other troubles. And that's where you run into these controversies scholastically. The bottom line is God's choosing who he wants to choose. And he has already chosen you before the beginning of time. We can't comprehend that. And then he ends with verse 25 and 26. He doesn't end, but that's where we're going. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. Hosea 2.23 And in the very place where it was said to him, said to them, you are not my people, they there will be called sons of the living God. Hosea 1. Another Old Testament illusion that needs explanation. If you go back into Hosea, which you have to to get the pitch that's going on here. You have the northern kingdom is about ready to fall to the Assyrians. They have come and are ready to destroy the, 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 the ten tribes north of Jerusalem. God says, and he, he says, some of you are going to be put outside the covenant and will be called not my people. That's chapter 1, verse 9. Notice that's not quoted here. And in chapter 1, verse 6, some of you will be called not my loved ones. So those are the Hebrew words lo ami and lo ruhama. But here he says, there will be those who are called my people, and I will call them beloved. So there's going to be a remnant out of this. God always calls a remnant. He always did. And then he quotes Isaiah. God, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Same situation, Assyrians are attacking Though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand in the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The verses prior to this quote 
he's asking, but what if Assyria is judged? In other words, Assyria is conquered. The remnant will still be there. It's what he's trying to put, a, put across. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I don't need to elaborate on what that means. Does this make much sense? Kind of yes, kind of no. It's a tough passage. In fact, there are many commentators who say, if you try to translate this, good luck. Because the Greek is somewhat twisted. You have these verse references that aren't full verse references. In fact, I skipped over a couple of them here where if we went back to the other passage, there's almost a three or four other lines around the line that Paul has plucked out. The bottom line is Paul is trying to say to us, I choose who I will choose. Just because you're born Jewish, just because you're born Jewish doesn't mean you're saved. I don't know, if there, there, you may have run into this in your lifetime, um, where you have someone who's born into a Bible-believing Christian family, and they grow up, and they're fine, and they think, I'm Christian, because mom and dad are, and I've always gone to church. That's not... Christianity, that's being born into it. We don't have a race, per se. So you can't say I was born into the Christian race. It's not that simple. You have the, uh, the challenges in um, older times in Europe where Christianity became a state religion. And not Catholicism, but Protestantism was a state religion. So you have Soren Kierkegaard writing about the vapidness of the church that he was surrounded by and saying, what's wrong with these people? They're just believing because it's normal. It's what you do on Sunday. That's a problem. And we see this in our own churches, in our own country, and this is where we pray for revival in America. This is what we pray, that people will somehow find within them that, that spark and that desire to serve the Lord with every vim, vigor, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it isn't just something casual you put on on Sunday morning with a, a nice set of clothes. If someone put it, I think it was Annie Dillard said, why, why do we wear nice hats and pretty clothes at church? We should wear crash helmets. I'm quoting her now. They should lash us to our pews. For God may wake and take offense. And I think about that sometimes when I'm sitting there. And if I begin either to drift, sorry, I'm confessing. We all done it, right? Where you drift, your mind goes somewhere else. Uh, and you think of the screw tape letters from C.S. Lewis, where the devil says, 
Oh, he's going to church? Don't worry, just reminding that he's hungry. Because he'll stop listening. And you start to drift, and you got to wait. What am I playing with here? What am I playing with here? And Paul is trying to reach out to his people, who was one. Of, he was one, He is one of them who killed Christians, and he's trying to say, "But Jesus is the grace and the salvation and the way and the truth and the life." Can you just? believe and he's trying to show them that just because they're Jewish doesn't mean that that's the answer let's pray Lord thank you for our time together to look at your word in depth to draw out these these allusions to the Old Testament that I'm afraid we, we take for granted or we're not quite all in in remembering the details which is fine it gives us a chance to read your word in its fullness and I take that as a uh, an admonition for myself and for each one of us that as we work through these passages that we realize it's there for a reason for us to think more deeply about what you have and your plan in our lives in Jesus name Amen